Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I confess, as I was preparing to write the sermon this week, I felt a little bit like a kid the night before Christmas who's trying to get to sleep. Uh, I have been really looking forward to the opportunity to preach this passage ever since uh, we first kind of decided that we were going to move to the book of Acts. And so this is, what word can you use to describe it? This is a monumental text. This text reflects what might, you know, I would argue what is the most significant moment in the history of all of creation. And you'd say, well, there are some pretty significant moments. And of course, Christmas time, right? We celebrate God with us. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, coming to earth and being with us. And then Good Friday and Easter, we celebrate God for us. God taking our sin upon himself and bearing it for us in his body on the cross. The Lord Jesus removing our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. But all of that, in a sense, was paving the way for what we celebrate here in Pentecost, which is God in us. This changes everything. It changes everything. And I, I would put forward this morning, before we go any further, that if we can, by the grace of God, understand this, if we could, by the grace of God, believe this, what is here in this passage, it's going to change our homes, it's going to change our workplace, it's going to change our neighborhoods, it's going to change our city. This changes everything. And so, before we go any further, I want to stop and I want to ask for the Lord's help and his blessing that we would see what we need to see and hear what we need to hear. So let's take a moment and be still before the Lord and invite him to speak. Lord God, just the mere act of listening to your word is spiritual warfare. And there is an enemy who wants to keep us from seeing you and from hearing from you. And he uses silly, mundane things. This crackling microphone, the exhaustion from the workers who were in the sun all day yesterday, maybe stresses from work, um, maybe an argument that happened in the car, or, or Lord, maybe just a distraction right now, minds that are jumping ahead to plans for the, the afternoon or the evening or the vacation that's coming soon. And we're asking now for your miraculous help. Uh, We pray that you would open our eyes to see. And we pray that you'd guard our eyes from all the distractions that that would keep us from seeing what it is that we should see. Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts. Lord, that you would take, perhaps there are here today, hard hearts, hearts that are made of stone. Would you make them into hearts of flesh? Lord, would you open our ears to hear? And Lord, would you prepare our minds to understand We want to know you more, and we want to know what you have done. We want to be able to walk in truth. Your word is truth, and your truth is going to go forward today, God. Would you bless it, I pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And your word goes forth, and it never, ever, ever returns void. So we are expecting you and asking you and pleading with you to move in our midst. And we ask this in faith in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Look with me now to the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 13. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. When When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here, you might argue that we stopped our reading uh, prematurely. And you could make a good argument for that because the Apostle Peter, beginning in verse 14, is going to address this crowd that's been assembled and he's going to explain all that has just happened. And so you could ask, and rightfully so, why on earth would you separate the event from the explanation of the event? And to be fair, I I thought about putting these together and that was what I was headed in the first draft. But the challenge is that there is so much here in the event, and then there's so much in the explanation that I I thought it didn't feel fair to try and do that in one sermon. So we're going to pull these apart, and we're going to make sure that we see all it is that we're meant to see. We're going to zoom in on this event. We're going to ask, what happened? Why, Why is this such a big deal? And so that's our approach this morning. We're going to zoom in, and we're going to consider the experience of Pentecost. And then with the time we have remaining, we'll we'll zoom out and consider the big picture and we'll talk about the significance of Pentecost. Okay, very simple outline. First, let's zoom in. The experience of Pentecost. You know, each year in December, we retell the story of, of the incarnation, right? That's Christmas. When the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came and clothed himself in human flesh. We come back to that year after year after year. Why do we do that? Is it because I assume that you've forgotten the story? You haven't, have you? It's each year we read the story and we get to this part where Mary and Joseph, they come and they're looking for a room and the innkeeper says, there's no room for you in the inn. And never once have I heard the congregation go, oh, what? what will they do? Right? You, you know this story and yet we come to it again and again. Why is that? Because, because that event is, is so monumental and significant. It is, it's an event that changed the world. And so year after year, we come and we return to Bethlehem and we marvel at the manger because we need to understand all of what happened there. Similarly, on Good Friday, we return and we bow before the cross and we see Jesus bearing the sin of humanity. And then on Sunday, we come to the empty tomb and we see the fact that he has conquered death and that those who are in Christ now are, are going to raise with him to newness of life. Rightfully so, we return to these events. Well, church, in the same way, we need to be returning to the event of Pentecost year after year. And I confess that I haven't done a great job of that. In the church calendar, there is a time set apart to remember Pentecost. And there have been many years when we've we've zipped through and we've stuck with our series. And it wasn't malicious. 
it was just because I wanted to keep going with what's next, but I resolved to stop every year and to remember the event of Pentecost because it changed everything. It's often referred to as the birthday of the church, and that terminology is, is actually, it's very helpful. Luke wanted us to see it in that way to a degree. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Luke and then Acts, which are both written by Luke, you can see that there's a, there's a parallelism. The structure is similar. So in, in Luke chapter 1, he sets kind of the, the pre-story preparing us for Jesus' birth. And in Acts chapter 1, he gave us the pre-story preparing us for the birth of the church. Well, then in Luke 2 and in Acts 2, we find the birth. The birth of Jesus, the birth of the church. He means for us to see that this is, in a sense, a birth story. Here, the church of Christ is born, and the world has changed forever. And so let's lean in and look at this story. What, what do we see? Well, the first thing we see is a people filled. At the close of chapter 1, the church was huddled together in the upper room, and they were united in prayer. They were waiting. Right, that's what we were considering last week. A people waiting, waiting in faith, waiting in expectation, waiting because Jesus promised that he would send them something. In chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, we read, And staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. For what? For the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so they're waiting with expectation. The group in that room, they're gathered together and they know that they're incapable of saving even a single convert. They were powerless and they knew it. And we know that they knew it because we find them here in the upper room, eagerly pleading with the Lord for power. And they're pleading with expectation because in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now just to consider the scene at the risk of being overly speculative. In my study this week, I was thinking about what it must have been like for the, the church gathered in that room waiting. For 10 days they waited. Did you know that? Between the ascension of Christ and Pentecost, there's this 10-day span. And so for 10 days, they're gathered together in this upper room waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. But of course, Pentecost has never happened before. So what exactly are we waiting for? You know, the, how do you wait for something that you've never seen before? You wonder if after day six or day seven, one of the people in the room, you know, turned to the person next to them and said, I don't know, I feel a little bit more powerful. Do you feel a bit more powerful? Like, Matthias, you look powerful. Maybe, is this it? But, so they're waiting for 10 days, praying and praying. And on the 10th day, on the day of Pentecost, the promise is fulfilled. And nobody in the room is wondering whether or not the promise has come. That's what we read in verses one to four. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So you got here, you got 120 men and women in their prayer meeting. If you've ever been to a prayer meeting, you know, they're huddled together, they're seeking the Lord in faith. And then suddenly, a sound like a hurricane fills the room. At which point, you know, every eye jumps up and everybody looks around. And they become even more amazed because they see that the room is on fire. 120 tongues of fire dancing like candles over the heads of all of the brothers and sisters in the room. They're in awe. 
they're, they're marveling at what's taken place. The God who led his people out of Egypt with a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night is working again with his people. The God who, who revealed himself to Elijah and he prepared him first with, with a sound like a rushing hurricane and then fire is once again revealing himself. The God who, who revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush is here speaking to his people. This was a theophany, which is a, a term that we use to describe a visible manifestation of the presence of God. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. But this was unlike any theophany that we'd ever seen in the history of the world. Because in the past, when God appeared, he was separate. He was distant. The fire was on the burning bush, but the fire wasn't on Moses. The fire couldn't be on Moses because Moses was a sinner and God is holy. He's a consuming fire. And so his revelation was, was distant from Moses. However, when God revealed himself to the church at Pentecost, that separation was gone. The flame that had previously shone at a dif- distance now flickered over every single believer in the room. Because the Spirit of God had taken residence in his people. And we're going to talk more about that later. The amazement continued. As the Holy Spirit performed his first work in the church, he loosened their tongues and he caused them to go out into the streets, proclaiming worship and praise and adoration in languages that they had never learned before. The roar of a rushing wind was replaced by the roar of the worship of the people of God. That room would have felt like a foretaste of Revelation 7. Revelation 7, the Apostle John sees this vision and he says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here in Acts chapter 2, the upper room in Jerusalem has been transformed into the throne room. The people of God have become the temple of God. It's magnificent. It's unlike anything that's ever happened in the history of the world. This is Pentecost, and it changes everything. And so now we see this multilingual worship service is flooding out of the upper room and into the streets. And that brings us to the second thing that we want to see in this scene, which is a crowd gathered. Pentecost was one of the three Jewish pilgrimage festivals. A pilgrimage festival was a time when, when people would come to Jerusalem for these corporate worship services. And some scholars estimate that a million people, a million pilgrims visited Jerusalem for this celebration. So Jerusalem right now is bursting at the seams. It is jam-packed. In, Luke five, or in, in verse 5, Luke tells us, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So who are these Jews that are from every nation under heaven? I mean, at first glance, you might, that might be confusing. You, the Jews are the people who live in Israel, you think. Well, if you remember the history of the Jewish people, in 700 B.C., the northern tribes were wiped out by Assyria. Remember that story? Assyria came and he demolished 10 of the 12 tribes. God miraculously saved Judah, but these 10 tribes wiped out. Some of them would have fled south and joined Judah. They would have gone to Jerusalem. 
But for the rest of them, they would have scattered east and west and north. The people of God now scattered out to the nations. These people were called the diaspora. And so you would have these little fledgling groups of Jewish refugees all scattered across the Mediterranean world. But here we see them 700 years later, and these Jews from all the nations, they're they're gathering together in this pilgrimage to worship God at Pentecost. They're gathered here in this place, and God takes advantage, God ordains this opportunity to proclaim his message to the world. The festivities of the day were interrupted by the sound of a mighty hurricane. You can imagine if you're in Jerusalem and all of a sudden you hear like uh, this unexplainable, loud rushing wind, and it's coming from a room in the middle of the city. People rush out into the streets, and when they get there, they're shocked by what they find. Look at verses 6 to 11 again. He says, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So again, these are, these are Jews. They're, they speak Hebrew, but because they've been living in foreign lands for hundreds of years, they've, their native language is the language from, you know, they, they speak Greek, or they speak Spanish, or they speak Latin. But here they see these Galileans speaking in their language. How is it that we hear each one in his native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia— Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So this is quite a scene, and it's quite a crowd that is gathered. And this scene has a polarizing effect on the crowd. Some lean in in their bewilderment, and they want to know what exactly is happening here. Others lean back and cross their arms. We read in verses 12 to 13, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They're filled with new wine. Let's just pause here. This isn't the main point, but I want to make sure we see this. We should not be surprised when our our evangelism, our proclaiming of the gospel, has a polarizing effect on people. Now, when we prepare to share the gospel, and we've got cabin leaders here this week who are preparing to share the gospel with these little ones, when we prepare to do evangelism, obviously we want to do our best. We want to be clear. We want to be compelling. We don't want to put any obstacle in the way of our listeners. But we realize, don't we, that you could give the best gospel presentation imaginable, but you can't change a human heart. And so you're going to encounter hard hearts and soft hearts. Here, they just had a hurricane rushing wind. The whole city is amazed. They're speaking in languages that they've never learned. And even still, there are some people leaning back saying, someone's had too much to drink. So we need to remember that as we go out. We need to not be so dissuaded or shocked when in our evangelism we encounter people who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. That's the pattern. Every time the word goes forth, they're going to be hard hearts, they're going to be soft hearts. And we don't know which is which, and so we're going to proclaim with faithfulness but recognize that the power to change a human heart is beyond your pay grade, and it's beyond mine. We're called to be faithful, and as we are faithful, we'll see this polarizing effect unfolding before us. We see that here. Now, let's lean back in, and let's observe also the effect of the Holy Spirit on the church. The unbelieving crowd accused them of drunkenness, 
And in fact, the Apostle Paul, I would imagine, is thinking of this story when he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 5. He writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So here we see in two passages in the New Testament where there's this contrast. We're saying, you don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Why is this comparison being drawn? Is it because being filled with the Spirit makes us silly and do silly things? Some of us get suspicious because maybe you've had bad experiences. I don't think that's what the New Testament, I know that's not what the New Testament is alluding to. But I think the reason why this contrast is being drawn is because drunkenness is actually an interesting comparison to being filled with the Spirit. Because what happens when you're drunk? You surrender your faculties. People encounter a drunken version of Bob, and they say, oh, this isn't Bob. You know, the, he, the things that he's saying right now, the things that he's doing, that's not Bob. Bob must be drinking. Bob must be under the influence, right? Surrendered his faculties. Well, in the same way, when the Holy Spirit fills us, people encounter us, and they should walk away saying, wow, that's not Bob. Like, that, that's not the way that Bob used to talk, and that's not the way that Bob used to live. That, it seems like there's somebody else has grabbed the steering wheel of Bob's life. And I think that's exactly right. That's what the Holy Spirit does to us. He changes us from the inside out. G. Campbell Morgan was a pastor in London, England in the early 1900s. And I'm sure most of you haven't heard of him. But you heard of his uh, mentee. He was actually, he mentored Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he handed over the congregation at Westminster Chapel to Martin Lloyd-Jones after he had trained him for a while. That's That's who this is. And I'm sharing this background information because I'm about to give you a quote from G. Campbell Morgan. And as you hear this quote, I want you to know this is coming from an orthodox, suit-and-tie British pastor. When he preached on this text, here's what he said. Oh God, how seldom men have thought us drunk. We lack the flashing eye and the pulsating song and the tremendous enthusiasm Of an overwhelming conviction. Oh God, how seldom men have thought me drunk. When the Holy Spirit fell upon the church at Pentecost, he took hold of the steering wheel. He immediately launched them out of their gathering and into the streets. The joy of the Lord overflowed from the congregation and into the neighborhood. The praise spilled from the assembly into the highways and byways because that's what God does. We receive from him and then we overflow to the world. That is the pattern of the Christian life. The God of the universe here has drawn a crowd from all the nations. And the King of Kings has empowered the witness of his church. And the Holy Spirit has commandeered their tongues. The Great Commission has begun. And here we see on day one, God is demonstrating that he is the one who will build his church. It will be him. That leads to the third and final scene I want us to see on the day of Pentecost, and that is an explanation given. And as I mentioned off the top, we don't have time to do justice to Peter's address today, and so I've chosen to set that aside for next time when we'll study his sermon on Pentecost. But suffice it to say for now that this crowd who had been gathered was not left in bewilderment. The apostle Peter boldly took this opportunity to explain to this confused assembly what it is that they were seeing. He pointed to the events that had transpired, and and then he pointed to a prophecy in Joel 
and he opened the scriptures and he said, this that you're seeing is that which is promised. Our God is a promise keeper and that's what he's doing in your midst today. And then he proceeded to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with power and 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And I made a claim at the beginning of the sermon. I want to restate it now. If by God's grace we can be helped to understand what we find in this text and we can be helped to believe what we see in this event, it will change everything. It will change your life. It will change your family. It will change your workplace. It will change your eternity. I want to show you why you should believe that. So with the time we have left, we're going to zoom out from this event of Pentecost, and we're going to highlight the significance of Pentecost. When Jesus was still ministering with his disciples in the flesh, he told them, this is John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And bear in mind, just a few chapters before this, Jesus has called Lazarus, a dead man, out of the tomb. And this dead man walked out of the tomb. The disciples just witnessed that. They are presently doing ministry with a man who has the power to raise the dead. And he turns to his disciples and he says, Listen, I'm about to leave and that is to your advantage. At which every disciple in this moment is thinking, no, Jesus, no, it's not to our advantage that you go. It's to our advantage that you stay, and you stay for a very long time. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. The disciples didn't understand. They couldn't comprehend. They, they didn't want the helper. They wanted Jesus ministering with them, and they, they couldn't fathom how it could possibly be to their advantage that he left. I would argue that the same is true for most of us today in this room. We don't understand and we don't believe. So let me just test that theory. I'll put, put out this opportunity. If, you, if there was a button that you could press, and you could press this button, and what would happen is that we would, we would all lose the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We would, we would lose the helper. But Jesus himself in the flesh would come down and would minister here in the city of Aurelia. Would you make that trade? Would you press that button? Jesus, who can raise the dead. Jesus, who's, who's healing people. Jesus, who's, who is God himself ministering in the flesh in our city. All we have to do is just surrender the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Would you press that button? And I imagine that many of us, we'd think about it. And some, some of us would. And that suggests to me that we don't understand and we don't believe what Jesus has said. It's to your advantage that I go. How is that possible? What was accomplished when Jesus ascended to heaven and sent us the Spirit? And why is this to our advantage? With the time we have left, we're going to ask that question, and we obviously don't have time to answer that comprehensively, right? We don't have time for me to explain to you every reason why it's better that we have the Holy Spirit. But I do want to pull out three reasons. I would argue the three most significant reasons why Pentecost changed everything. First, Pentecost ushered in a new covenant. Now, we often forget that Pentecost was, was actually part of the Jewish worship calendar before it was what we know as Pentecost today. I won't get you to raise your hands, but I wonder how many of us knew that. This was a Jewish holiday. Pentecost, it means it's the 50th day after the Passover. And on this 50th day, the, the Jewish people would celebrate the harvest. 
It was a time for them to remember that God had given them the land and God had given them the crops. And so they would gather and worship him with the harvest. Well, over the years, actually, the celebration of Pentecost, it, it morphed and it changed and it, and it was added to because the Jewish people, they widely believed that the 50th day after the Passover was also the day when, when Moses ascended Mount Sinai and received the law. And so Pentecost also became a day when, when the Jewish people celebrated the Mosaic Covenant and, and the gift of the law. Now, is it any coincidence that, that God would take this day and would commandeer this for what we understand as Pentecost? One commentator notes, just as Moses climbed Mount Sinai and received God's law, which he passed on to Israel, accompanied by visible signs of God's presence, Jesus ascended to God's right hand, and he poured out the gift of God's Spirit on the people of the new covenant. Jesus chose to send the Holy Spirit during Pentecost because he was making a statement. The old covenant has been fulfilled, and the new has come. And that is gloriously good news. The old covenant was predicated upon law. And the problem with the law was that it was external. It's not that the law was bad. The Apostle Paul says, no, the law is good. But the problem with the law is that it's not enough. It's external. It's like a fence that keeps us from wandering too far. It's a good fence, but it doesn't address the deeper problem. The problem that my heart wants to climb the fence and get onto the other side. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they sought to address this problem by, by making the, bent, the fence a little higher and by fashioning barbed wire to the top of the fence, you know, trying to make the law more stringent, more restrictive. But again, that didn't address the deeper problem. We didn't need a taller fence. We needed a new heart. We needed the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, where God promised a new day, a new covenant, a new way. He said, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. Let me pause before I read this. Just, it strikes me that there might be someone here in this room who, who doesn't yet see this piece. And so you're seeking to follow the Lord. You're interested in this Jesus talk. You're interested in, in this thing. But you actually haven't received this new heart. And so day after day, you're just trying to be good enough to do good enough. You're trying to build up a bigger fence. But what you need is not a bigger fence. You need God to miraculously give a new heart. And so as we hear this, maybe for some of you, you need to stop what you're doing and you need to ask God for this gift. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the glory of the new covenant. The new covenant means a new heart. The new heart means new affections. And all of this made possible by the Holy Spirit, which we were given at Pentecost. And this changes everything. And it leads us to the second reason why everything has changed. Because Pentecost ushered in, secondly, a new relationship. Each Christmas we celebrate the incarnation. And what a miracle it is that the God of the universe clothed himself in flesh, and condescended to, to dwell with us. It's amazing. I'm, I don't want to dwell with me most of the time. But the God of the universe clothed himself in flesh to come and to dwell with us. And he actually, he condescended even further to suffer and to die for us. 
That's a profound and powerful mystery. But it actually paved the way for something that's even more mysterious. Now, because of all that Jesus has accomplished, God has done the unthinkable. The God who condescended to us has now condescended even further to live in us. That should be impossible. If you don't realize that that should be impossible, let me just remind you this morning, that should be impossible. That a holy God would live in you. That a holy God would live in me. It's amazing that, I mean, God sees everything I've done. He sees every thought I've ever had, every word I've ever spoken. It's amazing that God has not struck me down with a lightning bolt here as I stand. That in itself is a merciful miracle from God. But he's gone a step further. He lives in me. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of me. And he lives inside of you, Christian. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you are a child of God, then you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. How could that be? As I said, I'm guilty of terrible sins. So are you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all of us guilty of terrible sin. And God hasn't changed, right? He's still holy. God hasn't changed at all. This relationship has been made possible because Jesus has fundamentally changed us. At the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself. The sin that separates us from our holy God. Jesus removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. In 1 John we read this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, because of Jesus, we've been cleansed from sin. It's gone. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have confessed your sin and surrendered your life to him, your sin is gone forever gone. And because your sin is gone, you are now fit to be the temple, the place where our holy God resides. And that is unthinkable. I mean, you think about the Jews who were living under the old covenant. God's presence for them, it was restricted to one room in the temple, the Holy of Holies, this room that was set apart. Only one person could go into that room, and that was the high priest. And the high priest could only go into that room one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And only after he had gone through a rigorous ceremony of atoning for his sin and atoning for the sins of the people, and then he would go in there, and it was a very horrifying day. The presence of God for the Israelites was an, was an off-limits thing. But on Pentecost, tongues of fire were over every head. Because every single person in that room, the young people, the old people, the mature people, the immature people, the men, the women, the the apostles, the servants, all of them were filled with the Spirit of God. All of them experienced the same presence of God in a way that the high priest under the old covenant could never have imagined. Do we understand the significance of this? You are now the temple of God. You are now the burning bush. You are now the place where our glorious God is revealing himself to the world. Do we fathom that? Even a glimpse of it? Because, boy, that changes everything. 
And it leads to the third and final thing that I want to highlight today. Why does this change everything? Pentecost ushered in a new covenant and a new relationship. And flowing out of that, it ushered in a new power. A new power. Before Jesus ascended, he gave his disciples this impossible assignment. He told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if I were in that group, my mind would have some objections. Some of us are a bit um, pessimistic. And that's not a good thing. But I'm one of those people where my mind will wander that way. And I can tell you in that moment, my mind would be wandering towards all of the objections for why this is impossible, Jesus. Do you know how long it takes to learn a new language? And how many languages are represented in the world? And there's 120 of us. And, and the distance, Jesus. Like how could we possibly get to the nations? They're, they're scattered abroad. They're far. We've got to learn the language. We've got to get there. I don't have any contacts in Rome. I don't have any contacts in Spain. There are a thousand and one reasons why this is absolutely impossible, let alone the fact that I don't even have the courage to talk to my neighbor about Jesus sometimes. Jesus, how are we going to do this? They were powerless. I know I've said that week after week after week. Let me say it again. They were powerless for this assignment. And in our flesh, so too are we. Powerless. It's impossible. But they sought the Lord. And they pleaded. And they believed his promise. And they asked him to keep it. And they received the power that he promised. The Holy Spirit came upon the church and everything changed. And all of these silly objections that seem so insurmountable in my mind, in an instant were overcome. They opened their mouths and languages that they had never learned came out. That was fast. And all of the nations that would be, how are we going to get to them? All of the nations, they run out the door and there they are. Assembled in the group. This is an aside, but I think it's interesting. You get to the end of the book of Acts, and we find the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome. And he hasn't yet been to Rome, but you know, it's interesting. Who's ministering to him when he's in prison in Rome? The church. Why? How is the church in Rome? He, the Apostle Paul, is, he's the missionary to the Gentiles. His, he's trying to get to Rome. He's passionately trying to get there. He, he gets there. He's in chains. There's a church. Hmm. Bible commentators, they speculate that it, it must have been someone here from this gathering. Somebody who had come on this pilgrimage to worship at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Someone from Rome. Who then heard this message and, and brought it back. And as Paul comes to Rome, there's already a little fledgling church that forms. It's fascinating. All of, all of our objections and the reasons why this is impossible. In an instant, gone. God says, who are you? You don't know me at all, do you? The Mediterranean world is exposed to the gospel in an instant. And suddenly the impossible seems very possible. And suddenly this fledgling, frail little group called the church seems unstoppable, which is exactly what they proved to be. Unstoppable. And it's why we're here in Aurelia praising Jesus today. The Great Commission began. And it began in all caps with an exclamation mark. These men and women are no longer mere mortals. They've become instruments in the hands of the powerful creator of the universe. G. Campbell Morgan, I mentioned him earlier. I love what he says here. Were they no longer his servants? 
Like, had they changed? Surely his servants, but no longer sent from him, but the very instruments of his own going. Their hands became his hands to touch men tenderly. Their feet became his feet to run on swift errands of God's love. Their eyes, his eyes, to flame with his tenderness. Themselves part of himself, which points me back to what we read in the first verse of the first chapter of this book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That that first book, which ended with Jesus ascending to heaven, that was just the story of what he began to do, but he's not done. The difference is now he's doing it through you and through me. And I hope and I pray that each and every one of us will come away from our series in the book of Acts with a healthy awareness of the power of God that is moving in and through us. I pray that we will believe what Jesus said, that it is to our benefit that he has ascended to the Father. I pray that we would believe with every fiber of our being that 100 people filled with the Holy Spirit here in the city of Aurelia is, is better for the city of Aurelia than if Jesus himself were here in the flesh because Jesus said that. And you know what else Jesus said? He said in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I am going to the Father. It's because I am ascending to the throne, and I am sitting down in my place as the king of the universe, because I possess all authority, because I have sent to you my helper, because the Holy Spirit indwells my church, greater things than these will be done. It's to your benefit that I'm here on the throne. Now church, go. Church, believe and minister and open your mouths and watch what comes out. We've been entrusted with the powerful presence of God. Oh, that we would understand. Oh that, oh, that I would believe. Oh, that we would ask him each and every day to fill us afresh with his powerful anointing. That we would trust in his ability to transform hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. That we would put to death all of the sin and the silliness that hinders the working of the Spirit of God here in our midst. That we would lay aside our fears and take hold of our mission and experience the miracle of the Spirit of God using us as his instruments to glorify the Son. God, help our unbelief. God, mobilize your church. God, help us to understand and to marvel at the mystery of the glory of Pentecost. To that end, would you pray with me? Oh, great God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your power. I confess that we are a people who are so inclined to fixate on all of the obstacles, all of the fears, all of the reasons why, why this, is, this mission you've given us is an impossibility. Lord, I pray that you'd lift our eyes, that we would see you. And we don't even have the strength to lift our eyes. I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit that you would fill us with faith today. Oh God, help our unbelief. We're asking for that. And God, I, I thank you that, that you can do this. That you can change this city. Lord, we have loved ones that are lost and we've been praying for them for years and years and years. And Lord, it can be so discouraging, but you can change the hard heart.
Help us to continue to plead with you and to continue to open our mouths, Lord, that we would be found faithful and to be used by you to bear witness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be bold in our evangelism. Lord, I confess that sometimes I find myself feeling so confined and I walk out of these doors and the boldness and the courage can, can wane. And, and our mouths can close as we go into a workplace and into a community where you are not praised and you're not worshipped. But Lord, you've called us to bear witness. You've called us to open our mouths. And you've promised us that you'll give us the words to speak when we need them. So God, I, I would just pray a very practical request right now. I pray that as we go out those doors again today and do what we have done week after week, year after year, I pray that we would believe you and that when the opportunity arises, that we would open our mouths and that, God, you would grant us to see the glory of what you can do when your people are obedient and faithful. And so, Lord, you haven't called us to, to be something that we're not. You've, you've just called us to trust you. And you've given us all that we need. Lord, so help us to see that. Help us to believe that. Help us to live that out, we pray. And we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?